Good morning, everybody. How are we? I know it's not church when my dad's not here, okay? But we'll just have to get through. But uh, we can make it. Uh, on behalf of my family, I do want to apologize, though. Was anyone at the Christmas tree lighting? Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, it was the new low for our family, seeing my dad dance and sing in front of the congregation. My niece, true story, my niece, like when she sees my dad get on the stage, start singing, she, puts her, she goes like this, like, oh. And I was like, yeah, Layla, I feel you, I feel you. But uh, hey, church, it is good to be here. Um, thank you for having me. It is great to be back home. Uh, my wife and I, we've been back here six months now. It's a blessing to be part of the student ministry. Um, this is a place that I've called home. This church is where I got saved. This church is where I grew in my faith. Uh, this is the place where God called me to do ministry. And so this is a special place. And it's a privilege to fill in for the old man today. So that being said, if you have your bulletins, we are in Acts chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 16, verse 23. If you don't have your Bibles or if you don't have your bulletin, we're going to have the verse on screen. We're going to read this story together, and then we'll get into the Word of God, okay? Acts chapter 16, verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the socks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, dear Jesus, Lord, I thank you, God, for the privilege where we can gather together as a church family and worship you and to study your word, God. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would just speak through me. That any of the words that I say that are not of you, God, that we could easily just dismiss, but the words that are of you, God, that your truth, God, it would pierce our hearts and it would convict us, God, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, um, what you want us to know so that we could be more and more like Jesus Christ. So, God, we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to tell you a little story about one of my students uh, when I was in California. His name is Raekwon Kristoff. Uh, and I met Raekwon when I was 22, when he was like in fifth or sixth grade. And he was a little punk kid, okay? I mean, he was just a punk kid. And he was a troublemaker. 
All right, he would leave youth group early and run around the halls, and it got so bad that we would actually have to call the cops on our own youth group, okay? I mean, because they, we just couldn't control them. So parents come up to me now, it's like, hey, my son's not doing their homework, and I just say, well, call the cops on them, you know? Um, but it was crazy, and so, I mean, we didn't know what to do with this kid, and he had a lot of kind of crazy friends as well, and and so we just kind of kept loving him, but he would yell and he would cuss and he would scream. Um, one time he threw a 44-ounce drink of red Gatorade onto someone with a white T-shirt. True story, not making this stuff up. Uh, the lowest point probably came when him and his buddy uh, Raul broke into the church. And we knew it was them because they're, you know, you just kind of know, right? You kind of know when there's something suspicious going on. He broke into the church and I remember parents came to me, some adults came to me and said, David, we're done with Raekwon. We're just done. It's time to give up on this kid. Some, some people, you just got to move on. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I was, I was kind of feeling the same. I was frustrated. I was up to here. But God just reminded me, and he reminded me this. He said, David, I haven't given up on you. And if God hasn't given up on me, then gosh, I can't give up on this kid. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to work with this kid. And so we disciplined him, we worked with him, but slowly over time, Raekwon gave his life to Christ. And then he got baptized. And then we got him to go and serve on a mission trip in San Francisco in the heart of the Tenderloin, serving the homeless and the poor. And he prayed out loud in front of a large group of people. I was so proud of him. And then he graduated. He had some hiccups along the way, but he graduated. And as I was leaving to move back to Texas, he said, Dave... I'm going to join the army. I'm like, what do you mean join the army? You can't survive in the army. You can't throw Gatorade on your drill sergeant. They'll kill you, right? Like, this is, you can't, what do you mean army? He's like, I'm going to join the army. And so he got my address for the new house that we're living in. And a couple months ago, I get this letter in the mail from Raekwon. It says, Dave, I'm in boot camp, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I want to quit. But God's keep, keeping me going. And I go to church almost every single day and I'm meeting my chaplain and I'm reading my Bible. And he said, Dave, I think I want to be a chaplain. The only problem is, is I cuss too much. <laughs> right? I was like, and so I wrote back. I was like, that's okay, Raquan, you know. My dad said a few things to me too every once in a while, you know. But uh, I said, hey, listen, man, if you finish, I'll go and I'll see you graduate. Well, this last Friday, Raekwon graduated, and throw up the picture, right up there. Raekwon graduated from boot camp, yeah. He got shipped out to El Paso just the other day, and I was so proud of him. But what was so cool to see was not that just God changed his heart, but then when I was with his family, his older brother, his older brother said, Dave, you know, if if my brother, he, he joined the army, that, that means I can do it too. And then his little niece, who's like eight, nine years old, she came up to me and says, Dave, she said, Dave, I'm going to join the army too. And then I, I'm sure other people in her family saw Raekwon graduate. And they're like, I'm going to join the army too. And what I was so proud about Raekwon was not only did God change his heart and his trajectory in his life, but that God is using Raekwon to change the trajectory and the direction of his family's lives as well. A changed heart changes lives. A changed heart changes lives. 
And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. That's what we see in the story in Acts chapter 16. And my guess is too, is that although we all have different stories, we want that to be our story, right? We want God to change our heart. We want God to change our life so that we in turn can be an influence to changing other people's lives as well. And so how does that happen? How does that process take place? So number one, how does this happen? First off, we gotta recognize the need for a heart change. We gotta recognize the need for a heart change. You know, we cannot have a changed life and we cannot change other people's lives unless God first changes our heart. We have to recognize that we need a heart change. Let me tell you what's going on in this story. What we see is that Paul and Silas are doing their thing, they're advancing the gospel, they're advancing uh, the message of Jesus Christ. And they come to this town and they're spreading the gospel and the, the crowd can't handle it and they just literally beat them with rods to the point of they're probably unrecognizable. And then they throw them into jail and that's where we meet the person I want us to focus on today, the cold-hearted jailer. And most jailers, when they would get a prisoner who was beaten, they would kind of tend to the, their wounds, but not this jailer. This jailer took Paul and Silas to the back of the prison cell where there was no light, where there was no sunlight coming in, tied them, chained them to the wall and said, hey, you know, you're on your own, so to speak. And you see, this jailer, we don't know a lot about this jailer, but we do know that if you were a prison guard back in Paul's day, that most likely you were an ex-military guy. So meaning that this guy had gone through the battles. He had gone through the wars. And any person you've met who's military, ex-military, they're, they're proud people, aren't they? And they should be proud. They've served their country. They've fought wars. They've sacrificed. So this dude is probably very proud, very accomplished. And yet that pride and that kind of ego that we kind of sense and smell from this has kind of led to this insensitivity, to this coldness. And so we see them, he's taking care of him, and he goes to bed and he thinks he's all fine. But what's so interesting is that we see this cold-hearted jailer, this accomplished man, this person who is battle-scarred but has prevailed his whole life, we see him fail. And he wakes up in the middle of the night to this giant earthquake that God had sent and the ground is shaking and the walls are rattling. And what he sees is that the, the prison doors are broken open the chains are gone, and he wakes up and he sees that the prison doors are open. He says, oh my gosh, I failed. And instead of, um, instead of facing the humiliation of, of, of his supervisors where he would have to confess his wrong and probably be publicly executed, instead of facing his failures, he pulls out a sword and is ready to kill himself. Now, what does that mean? What's going on in this man's heart? What we see, what's going on in this man's heart is that he has based his whole identity, his whole significance, his whole um, honor on the fact that he has done his job well, right? And that's what boosted up his ego. But then when he finally fails, he's forced to see that he's not as strong as he thought he was. And he can't handle it. He doesn't want to handle it. So he pulls out the sword and he's ready to end it all. Do you guys see why we need a heart change? We need a heart change because we're the same thing. 
We don't find our identity in Christ. Our hearts don't find our love and acceptance in Jesus Christ. We find our honor. We find our significance in how we do our jobs, in our morality, in our performance. And what happens is, is when we do good, right? When we're reading our Bibles, when we're really succeeding at our job, when we're being good parents, we kind of get a little ego, right? We get like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. But when we fail, we are ready to fall on the sword. And nothing better, I think, illustrates that point um, than an article that I read recently on ESPN.com, favorite website. I love ESPN, hallelujah for ESPN. Um, It was about Ronda Rousey. Any UFC fighter, or UFC fighters, any uh, UFC fans in here, it's okay. Um, Ronda Rousey was a female UFC fighter. She was 12 and 0. She was like the it thing. And people called her invincible. People thought she was the best fighter ever. She even said that she could take out Floyd Mayweather. And so she became a very, what media would say, very arrogant, very puffed up until she got in the ring a few weeks ago against Holly Holt and she got knocked out. And a journalist comes in to interview her about a few weeks after the fight to see what happens to a person who's so proud when they're forced to recognize that they're not as strong as they thought they were. And this is what the article says. The Rousey myth of invincibility, the idea that one woman could fly in a cape and take down male hegemony with an armbar, the UFC's marketing strategy of Ronda as Amazon or just a winning streak, Rousey sinks into her couch to ponder the question. I feel like I'm grieving the death of a person who could have done that, she says. I'm so sad. I need to come back. I need to beat this chick. Who knows if I'm going to pop my teeth out or break my jaw or rip my lip open, but I have to do it. You guys see what's going on there? She succeeded. She was puffed up. She found her identity in her performance. But when she failed... She didn't know who she was anymore. And guys, that's why we need a heart change because we're the same. You're succeeding in your career, you're climbing up that career ladder, but then you lose your job and you're like, who am I anymore? Right, parents are raising up your kids and now you're empty nesters and you don't know what to do because your identity has been wrapped around of just being a parent and loving on your kids and then your kids are gone. You're like, I don't know what to do anymore. Or your kid who you thought you're you're a good parent, you're raising them up the right way, and then all of a sudden they rebel and they're doing drugs and they're failing their classes, and you are ready to fall on the sword. Don't you see, church? We need a heart change. We cannot base our identity and our significance on our accomplishments, on our performances, on our obedience. We can't. So what changes the cold heart? What changes the heart? What changed this jailer's heart? Church, the only thing that can change a cold, cold heart is grace. It is grace. The only thing that can change your heart, that can change my heart, that can change your kids' hearts, that can change your friends' and your peers' hearts, is not putting on this pressure of them to succeed, of them to perform, but rather it is bestowing upon them the undeserved kindness of Jesus Christ. And what we see is that this jailer, he has the sword out. And he's ready to fall on that sword, right? He is ready to end it all. And he's about to fall on it. Then he hears this voice, wait! Stop, don't fall on the sword. Don't kill yourself. We're all here, right? And can you imagine if you're the jailer? I mean, you are about to end your life 
And then you look over and you walk to the jail cell and you see the people who are supposed to hate you, who are supposed to despise you, who are supposed to walk out on you. You see those people who you have treated so unkindly and so unfair, they are sitting in their jail cell. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was in Paul or Silas's position, I would probably, I'd be praying like, God, could you please rescue me from this? Could you, you know, I just, please give me a sign so I can get out of here. So I would take that earthquake and the prison doors opening up. There's like, okay, this is God wanting me to, to leave, right? I'm just going to walk out of here. But Paul doesn't do that. Why not? Why doesn't Paul just leave? And the reason Paul didn't leave is, I think is this, is because he knew that if he walked out free, then that would mean the end of the jailer's life. And Paul didn't want to do that. So he chose to stay in that prison cell so that jailer could go free. Church, that is grace. That is undeserved kindness. That is treating someone not because they have performed, but that is treating them kindly in spite of their performance in spite of their behavior. It's unfair, it's radical, that's grace. And it's only grace, only grace can melt the coldest of hearts. Do you guys remember the, the Charleston shooting that happened uh, a couple, couple months ago? Um, some young 20 year old guy walks into a black church in Charleston, I think South Carolina, and uh, waits till the end of the service and shoots up about eight, nine people. And they arrested him, and then about 24, 48 hours later, they had like a bond hearing. And the judge, kind of unconventionally, allows the victims of the families to speak. And maybe you remember this, but I want to read to you what a few of them said. One family member said this, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me, you hurt a lot of people, but if God forgives you, then I forgive you. And when people heard the victims of the family say that, they were blown away. They didn't know what to do. Like these are the people that are supposed to say to, that, to the murderer, like, I hate you, like, I hope you rot, I hope you burn, I hope you get the death penalty, I hope you suffer, I hope you feel the pain and the guilt of what you've done. And yet these family members go to this court hearing and they say the exact opposite. And it sent shockwaves where Time Magazine posted their cover article entitled To Forgive a Murderer. They didn't know, like, how do people who have been so wrong forgive? See, church, the only way we change hearts is through grace, undeserved kindness. That's the only way. And so the question is, well, how do we receive this, right? How do we receive this grace? And the answer is, is we got to stop doing. We got to stop trying to perform. We got to stop trying to obey and simply start believing. See, this jailer comes in and he can't believe it, right? The people are in the prison cell. He can't believe it. And so he runs to Paul and he says, Paul, what must I do to be saved, right? What five-step program must I do for God to like me? What Bible verse do I got to read? You know, what, what person do I have to say I'm sorry to, right? What job do I have to do to climb up this ladder so that God will like me? And what does Paul say? He says, stop doing. And he says, look to Jesus Christ. 
Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. See guys, the beauty of grace is this, is that it's not about what you do or don't do, but it's about what's been done for you. It's about what Jesus Christ did on that cross that shapes how we view ourselves. It's we receive that grace. I learned this lesson the hard way uh, when I was in college. I was uh, 21 years old and I was dating this girl and we were kind of off and on for a year. And I remember game two, after the NBA finals of 2006, the Mavs just went up 2-0 on the heat. And we're walking to the car and the girl comes to me and says, David, I think uh, God is telling me that we need to break up, right? And it was hard. I was like, first off, actually, when any girl says, I think God's telling me to break up with you, that's a bunch of baloney, okay? That's just a bunch of hogwash. That is straight up lies, okay? I've never heard any person say, I've seen the voice of God come down from the heavens telling me to break up with you. But anyways, that's fine. I'm not bitter, okay? Everything's great. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever. And so I didn't really take her seriously. And so I was like, I'm going to prove to her, right? I'm going to show her that I'm awesome. I'm going to win her back. I bought her like a $300 bike thinking this will be it. This is how I get you back. That didn't help. And so um, she eventually said, David, like, I just don't want to be with you. And I, and I asked her, I was like, hey, like what? Come on, give me the real reason, right? Give me the real reason. And she said, David, I just want to date a man. Ouch, right? What do you mean a man? I thought I was, I have, I, I have chest hair, come on, right, you know? I have a beard. I think I'm a man, you know? Gosh, what do you mean a man? So, you know, it's funny, right? It's funny thinking about it now, but guys, those words, man, they rocked me. They rocked me to my core. And I, I would look around and see other guys and see guys who are bigger, stronger than me, godlier than me. And I was just filled full of insecurity. And I was like, how could I ever live up to that? And I wanted to prove her wrong so bad and so much. And yet inside, I was like, how could I ever live up to that standard? I remember meeting up with my dad at lunch one day. We met at the Prairie House. I think it's off of 380 on your way to Denton. And I told dad, I was like, dad, I don't... I don't think I can ever live up to this standard. I don't think I can ever please her or anyone else. I just, I just don't know how I can do it. And you know what my dad said? He looked me in the eyes and he said, David, stop living for the audience of many and start living for the audience of one. And that audience of one is Jesus Christ, who does not treat you how you deserve. It is not about what you do or haven't done, but rather it's about what has been done for you, that Jesus Christ spread, uh, spread out his arms and died on that cross and his blood covers over our sin so that we can be called the children of God. And Paul says in Colossians 3.12 that we are chosen and that we are holy and that we are loved by God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Not because we are some CEO or some awesome parent or because we are some failure or some drug addict. We are loved because Jesus Christ's blood covers over our sins. And when you live for the audience of one, you'll become free free from the weight of those expectations, free from the weight of trying to climb up that ladder of performance. You will be free and you will experience grace melting your heart. Only grace 
right? Only grace, only grace can change our hearts. But church, when it changes your hearts, when it grabs a hold of you, when you realize that you are loved not by what you do or you don't do, well, then it starts to change everything. It starts to change everything. And a changed heart will change your oikos, okay? I know that's kind of a a Greek word. I'm gonna explain that in a little bit. But a changed heart will change your oikos. Now, what we see is with the jailer is that he gives his life to Christ. Paul says, hey, look to Jesus, right? He says, look to Jesus. He gives his life to Christ. And then what he does is he goes home to his family. And he says, family, guess what? I almost killed myself today, right? (laughs) I almost killed myself, but I've given my life to Christ. And he, he shares the message of the gospel. And what's crazy is that his whole household, they give their life to Christ, I mean, imagine how crazy this is. Uh, let's reverse the tables. Imagine if your wife or your husband comes home and they're like, hey, honey, I'm a Muslim. I just became a Muslim, right? I mean, just imagine how shocked you would be if your husband or wife or be- became a Muslim and then all of a sudden your family became a Muslim. I mean, that's how crazy this is. But a changed heart changes lives. And what's so interesting we see about how the New Testament church grows You know, a lot of us, we kind of think it was through great sermons, it was through all these awesome miracles, and it was. There was definitely a part of that. But as you study Acts and you study the New Testament, what happened was, was that people would hear a message, they would receive the grace of Jesus Christ, and then they would go into their oikos, which literally means household, okay? They would go into their household, share the good news, and then people would give their life to Christ just like that. And we learn a really interesting principle, and it's the principle of the oikos. And oikos, what it means is, literally it means household, but when you look at it, it's, it's more than just household. It's, it's your 8 to 15 people who you have like primary connection, direct influence in, in their life, right? So that could be a family member, it could be a best friend, it could be a neighbor, it could be a co-worker, but every single one of you has a, a network of maybe 8 to 15 people that you have influence in. And what we see all throughout the New Testament is that God changes a heart and then he sends them into their oikos and then their oikos is changed forever and they receive the grace of Jesus Christ. I wanna show you how I experienced this play out when I was in Bellflower, California doing urban ministry for seven years. You guys remember the story of Raekwon, right? I shared at the beginning. Well, Raekwon got invited to our church by his best friend, Raul, who is cousins with a girl named Lily. Could you show the picture of Lily? This is Lily. Lily got invited to our church. Our church was called Neighborhood Christian Fellowship. Lily um, started coming uh, to our church when she was in second grade. And Lily had a pretty hard life. Uh, Her mom had her when she was 15 years old. Can you imagine that? Having a kid when you're 15? And then Lily's mom had another, uh, her little brother when she was 19. Jose, and Jose got diagnosed with severe, severe autism. And so as a single mom with two kids and one with severe autism, she couldn't, she couldn't afford to kind of get the care she needed, so she became a, a kind of a government kind of social worker for her son. And so Lily, um, her mom and Jose, they would sleep in one bed in a small thousand square foot apartment, and Lily would just sleep in the living room on the couch. 
And then she grew up in a really rough uh, street called Harvard Street, where her best friends, her best uh, friend, her, uh, her name was Sarah, her brothers were, were pretty into some light gang activity. And they, they grew up uh, and I, they did high school at juvenile detention centers. I mean, that's kind of the neighborhood. If you can't get the sense, that's the type of neighborhood that she's growing up in. But somehow God got her connected to our church. I think a friend invited her and God started to change Lily's life. And so what happened was all these kind of godly men just kind of, kind of became a second dad to her. And they were pouring into her, loving her. And by the time I got there, I met her when she was in high school. And we were rallying around her and making sure that she would, you know, did her homework. And we would tutor her. And she graduated high school. She got accepted into Cal State Long Beach. We chipped in some money so that she could have, uh, she could have a laptop for college. And she's going to graduate uh, college this May. I'm really proud of her. But what I'm really even more proud of is how she changed her oikos. You see, when she started going to church and started experiencing the love of the Christ at the church, she started to invite her friends. And her friends started to invite their friends. And their friends started to invite their friends. And all of a sudden, and at this old white Baptist church that was dying, we had this vibrant grassroots youth ministry. Show this next picture. This is a, a group of us at the Santa Monica Pier on an all-nighter, which I hate and I'll never do again, okay? <laughs> um, but we had a rag muffin bunch of students in our youth group. And what was happening was crazy is that students were starting to come to Christ. And out of those kids, there was a, um, kind of a core group of boys that I discipled, that I was really mentoring. Show the next picture. And these are a group of boys up here that, um, this is one of my favorite days of ministry, that I got to baptize them. This is Marcelino on the left. And Marcelino lived on Lily Street. And Lily invited Marcelino. And Marcelino was a leader. He was on the football team. He invited his guys. And so I was working with them and they gave their life to Christ. And I was able to baptize them. It was one of the proudest days of my life because all these kids were coming from pretty rough backgrounds. And I look at that picture and I was like, man, none of that would have happened unless Lily, you know, made a difference in her oikos. But it doesn't stop there. See, the middle kid uh, in that picture of the baptism picture, his name was Sergio. Is up there? Sorry. Okay, that's all right. We'll go to the next. Can we, oh, yeah. The one right by me uh, is Sergio. And Sergio lived on a rough street called Eucalyptus. And he lived with his family members in a small three-bedroom house with 12 people in this house. All right? Imagine like 13 square, 1,300 square foot, 12 people living in this house. And he came to the youth group, and he had a little nephew who wanted to go to the youth group too. And he just had to wait till he was six, until he got to uh, sixth grade. And so then Juan Pablo, his nephew, Juan Pablo, started coming to our church. Show the picture next. And Juan Pablo, he gave his life to Christ. He started coming to summer camps and he experienced God at camp and he gave his life to Christ and God changed his life. And then all of a sudden, on like my last month or so in California, what's so interesting is his family came to me and says, Dave, we're being kicked out of our house and we don't have a security deposit to get into the apartment. It was a family about six. Can the church help us? It's like, absolutely. So we kind of pulled some money from our deacon's fund and gave them um, about half of the security deposit to get them into a house. And I got to see them move in and see a family of six find shelter. And as I took a step back, I was like, oh my gosh, 
None of this would have happened unless Lily invited her oikos. And I wish I could tell you it stops there, but it doesn't, you see, because then Juan Pablo, because he loved the church and Christ had changed his life. He's like, I'm going to invite my friends. And so he invited this, uh, the group of what we call the Calderon boys. And show the picture of the Calderon boys. Six boys who lived with their dad, a single dad uh, raising six boys. And the dad was a construction worker. And he worked 12 hours getting paid minimum wage just to provide for his boys. The mom was out of the picture because the mom was trying to sell her little kids for drugs on the street. And so they're just trying to survive and just get by. And those kids started coming to our church. And those kids started to give their life to Christ and get baptized. And I remember one Sunday morning, I get a text from my youth pastor. And he says, Dave, the Calderon boys, their, their dad passed away last night. Died of a heart attack. And I had to preach. This was like 30 minutes before I had to preach. I was rocked. I was like, God, why, you know, why would you let this happen? And so we, we do service. And I remember as we're singing songs, the Calderon boys come in because they had no other place. They didn't know where else to go, so they came to church. And after that service, we stepped outside and we all bawled like babies. And we didn't know what to do. And we were afraid. The oldest brother was 20. The youngest was 12. And we were scared that Child Protective Services was going to tear this family apart. And so the church and the community said, we have to do something about this. And so we rallied around those boys. And we started cleaning up their apartment. We started kind of bring, making like lunch and dinner schedules. And what was so crazy was when they were at the hospital after their dad passed away, there was a nurse whose just heart went out to them. And she got her lawyer friend to come in and started working with those kids and teaching them life skills. And what happened over time is that the two oldest brothers, Adrian and Salvador, gained custody of their younger brothers. And as I look back on how God took care of the Calderon boys, as I take a step back, I'd say, you know what? I don't know if that would have happened unless that girl, Lily, decided to invite her oikos. But it doesn't stop there because that lawyer, Terry, that woman in the middle, that lawyer, by the way we love those kids, she wasn't going to church. She was just watching Joel Osteen's sermons on TV. She's like, I want to go to this church. And so then she started going to the church and inviting her friends. And I couldn't believe it. Because as I look back on this domino effect, I was like, all this happened because of one girl who can make every excuse in the book not to care about her life, not to care about other people, not to live for the purposes of God, says, I am going to love my oikos and I am going to invite my friends to church. And church, life point, as I look at us, the question is, what if, what about us? Why not us? What if God changed your heart today? What if, if you and trying to climb up that ladder of performance, but that you just received grace and you let that grace transform your heart, that you let the love of Jesus Christ change your hearts where then you go into your oikos, into your friends, into your communities, and you just whip out that little Christmas invite card and say, you know what? I'd love for you to come to our church. I'd love for you to experience the radical grace the unconditional, undeserved kindness of Jesus Christ.
Can you imagine what would happen to our church? Could you imagine what could happen to our community? Could you imagine what could happen to our neighborhood if you allow God to change your heart and then your changed heart could change so many lives? That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, I thank you, Lord, um, for who you are. God, I thank you, Lord, that while we are sinners, Lord, that you have mercy on us, that you do not treat us how we deserve, Lord, but that you are radically unfair. And that, God, that you loved us so much that in spite of our sins, in spite of us mocking you, in spite of us ridiculing you, God, that you live the life that we couldn't live and you died the death that we should have died so that we might not perish, Lord, but that we can have everlasting life. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God. And I pray if there's anyone in this room today, Lord, that they would cry out to you just like the cold-hearted jailer and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, God, you would meet them where you're at and that you would change their heart, God, and they would experience the chains of performance, the chains of the law, the chains of the, uh, the pressure of obedience that would just break and fall off. And they would know, Lord, that their audience of one loves them unconditionally. And God, I pray, Lord, then that would compel us to go into our oikos, to go into our household, to go into our communities, to go into our schools, and to simply, God, spread that grace that we do not deserve. Lord Jesus, may that happen, God, in our city here. May that happen in our county. May that happen in our neighborhoods. God, we want to see this place change for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time,